Hello, everybody. My name is Daniel Prince, and I am the host of the Once Bitten podcast. This is a podcast focused on Bitcoin. It's my mission to interview as many people as I can around the different aspects of Bitcoin and help people understand exactly what Bitcoin could mean for them and for their families and for their future. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for listening. Hey guys, welcome to this edition of the Once Bitten podcast and sitting down with me for this rip is Richard Grove from Grand Theft World. Go check out his pod. That is an amazing deep dive. They have really long rips on some very, very interesting and up-to-date topics. The reason I wanted to speak to Richard is because of his work with John Taylor Gatto, who has been influential within the homeschooling or alternative education space. Richard sat down for a whole weekend and recorded one of the most incredible interviews you will ever see. It's called Underground History Lesson with John Taylor Gatto or The Ultimate History Lesson, A Weekend with John. I will put links into the show notes where you can go and check this out. The, the, these two guys during this interview just rally back and forth from each other and it uncovers so much about the education system. John's very well known as I said, for his work within that space and his books and all of his talks. So I hope you get a lot out of this. And if you know who Richard is already, be prepared to learn a little bit more about this young man. It's pretty amazing. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, please make sure that you are looking to get to the Liberty in Our Lifetime conference, which is being held in October, 21st to the 23rd of October, is all about parallel systems, which I'm sure Richard would be interested in learning about as well. It's not a strictly Bitcoin conference. There's going to be all kinds of topics brought up. I will be speaking myself about education. Prince Philip of Serbia is going to show up, Stefan Levera, Titus Gable, Magat Wade, and many more. Go check it out. Links are in the show notes. But please make sure you're also stacking your sats. You can use Swan Bitcoin in the US of A. SwanBitcoin.com forward slash Bitten is going to unlock $10 for you. You can use a very similar service across Europe. Relay, R-E-L-A-I dot C-H forward slash Bitten. If you want to get some really big size on and you've pilled your mum and dad or your nanny and granddad, whatever it is, or some business associates, use Bitcoin Reserve because they can give you a white glove service, 50 grand and over to really start kicking into high gear. Or they can help you stack up to a thousand pounds or euros a day. Coincorner.co.uk. Coincorner.com. Coincorner.com forward slash Bitson. They've got you covered as well across uh, Europe and the UK. You can smash by with these guys. You can set up your auto DCA. They're doing a lot of work with Lightning. Great, great things to come. Make sure you're watching out for those guys. Again, hit the link in the show notes. But make sure you take control of those damn coins. Shiftcrypto.ch forward slash bitten. Have your back with a Bitbox 02 hardware, wallet, Bitcoin only, excellent piece of kit, Swiss made. And if the US, if you are in the US, excuse me, or visiting, go and check out bitcoinday.io. Use code OB10 
for 10% discount on your tickets. They're doing monthly meetups, Bitcoin only. Enjoy this rip with Richard. All right, we're recording with Richard. Richard, welcome to the show. So great to speak with you. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, thank you for the invitation. Um, I'm delighted to talk about education. Excellent. All right, Lauren, what do you have? So my question is, what is a conspiracy theory? A conspiracy theory is a phrase made up of two words, each of which has an innocuous definition. A conspiracy is when people get together and they, the, the word conspire means to breathe together. So they make a plot, right? So they're taking some illegal action, taking away somebody's freedom, probably maybe going to plunder somebody's production. That's a, that's a general conspiracy. A theory is uh, the next place next to hypothesis in the scientific process. So in the scientific method, you would start with that which exists. And there are pieces of artifacts and evidence, and you would inspect these and ask questions about these. And you might come up with a, a theory about a couple of these things that fit together. And then you would have a working hypothesis to which you could carry on experiments. And then if you had a repeatable experiment, you could call this a new scientific fact. So those two words together, conspiracy and theory themselves, we use them all the time. The United States government charges plenty of people with conspiracy. It's a criminal act in the United States. There are many people who have theories and hypotheses like the Big Bang Theory. We don't even call it the Big Bang Hypothesis. We call it the Big Bang Theory, right? There's even a, a, a popular uh, show in the Americas uh, about the Big Bang Theory, right? These uh, group of nerdy scientists get together, ask these questions, right? So it wasn't until before I was born in 1968 that the phrase conspiracy theory was used as a pejorative, meaning it had a negative connotation. When someone said conspiracy theory, it no longer meant these two words put together. It meant stop thinking. Someone, someone else has the authority here. Don't even think about that. And it shows up in a document called uh, it's a Central Intelligence Agency document. So it's an intelligence agency for America. Um, 1035 dash nine six zero one zero three five dash nine six zero concerning criticism of the Warren Commission and its, its findings. So it's a long memo. It's about 24 pages and it's the CIA internally saying we've got people questioning the official story on how President Kennedy was assassinated. And they cite specifically a book called Inquest by Edward J. Epstein. Now, Edward J. Epstein, on a tangent note, was John Taylor Gatto's roommate at Cornell University. So in this document that the CIA is lamenting that Epstein is bringing light to this artificial process of deliberation to come to the conclusion that it was a single person uh, uh, at the helm of that operation, and it floats out into uh, world culture in a variety of ways. So for the past 50 plus years, the phrase conspiracy theory has, has been used to stop people from using question marks at the end of their sentences, because, you know, to, to think outside their box might lead you to un, you know, inconvenient facts and evidence that contradict their narrative. So very much the phrase, as it's commonly known, the reason that you would even know to ask what is a conspiracy theory is because the CIA has done their work and MI6 has done their work 
to make sure that the world has a place to stop and say that you can't uh, you can't ask questions outside the narrative that's a mel gibson movie from 1996 you're talking about where the guy's all wacky but if you dig into the layers of that movie even in, as like pop culture there's a lot of truth in that movie hidden as far as the operations and things that they they conducted around this so does that answer your question and did i leave any room for doubt no no room for doubt no I call them these days now, uh, Richard, spoiler alerts rather than conspiracy theories. Yeah, yeah. It's um, not all conspiracies are based on fact. So you have to learn how to sift them. And this is what people call going down the rabbit hole because the Internet's kind of a big place still, although it is highly censored. And I was just you know, doing some research on how deep is the Internet these days? Are all these results they show us? They claim are available or can you actually find the internet or is it just curated in a bunch of of companies um but the the whole thing of having access to the internet is going to expose you to ideas that may or may not be true and now one has to parse these and you know is is this conspiracy theory based on some evidence is that evidence misconstrued is it hyperbolized or is it not based on any evidence at all there are many narratives in mainstream media that have run over the past six years that are not true whatsoever and that they have they have the place on the daily you know nightly news you know russia 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 any number of scandals involving russia have been claimed for the past couple of years as a means to hide like the hunter biden laptop and these sort of things which were seen as a conspiracy theory but two years later we now know that's verified fact and that they lied about these things to change our history to take away people's right to choose to take away our freedom so critical thinking has to oppose this censorship and the censorship is there to protect you because they don't want you to do critical thinking so they have to curate the internet they have to make sure that dissenting views are too far away for most people to find them like you have to look pretty hard and that all the views that they have are curated and supposed to be there and when you notice that they might say well you're a conspiracy theorist and so a lot of times if it's based on fact you're talking about people who are reading documents that exist, uh, you know, reading books about the things by the people in their own words. So I don't need to, like, I was never uh, looking for any of this stuff. It it came at me through life. The things that we're going to talk about, which yeah. we're going to talk about. But yeah, I'll release Lauren right now. Yeah. So do you want to say thank you? Yes, thank you. Bye. Oh, thank you so much. That was a wonderful question. It's one of the best questions I've ever been asked, and you have an amazing future as an interviewer ahead of you. Keep it up. Thank you. Yeah. You're very welcome. Remember, question everything and do your own research. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you. Bye. Bye. Uh, yeah, I wanted to ask you about, um, well, the guy that puts in touch, I'll, he will rename nameless. He knows who he is. He's listening. Uh, that's I'm all Mike. that needs to be said. We'll just call him Mike. There's a lot of Mikes out there, but he knows. He knows. Exactly. He knows. He knows. He knows. And he said, you got to speak to Richard uh, because I, I had... I've, I talk at length about homeschooling or um, unschooling or world schooling or whatever. And, and John Telegato being a big influence in, in that and your, mm. your particular interview, which by the way is five hours of complete gold, totally amazing. And I, I will put that link in the show notes for anybody to go and. Yeah. It's on YouTube. You can watch it all for all for free. Yeah. It's yeah. amazing. And he said, well, get Richard on. I can put you in touch. Um, but you have to talk to him about like his 9-11 story. 
And I got a feeling that's kind of probably what led you down the rabbit hole of, of searching for truths. But, you know, I, I won't assume anything. Can you just hit us with, with what went down and how your life changed on that day? Yeah, I mean, my life changed on that day. It started to change on that day. And that was a metamorphosis of uh, self-realization and realization about my environment that went on for several years. Um, the, the story is about like two hours long, right? And I don't want to leave key parts out of it. So I'm just going to go over like the broad strokes. I grew up in Western Pennsylvania. I went to public school. I went to a state university in Pennsylvania that I'm not proud of, so I don't use the name. I went there for five years to get a business degree. While I was working my way through school, I was working as a fry cook. I did, I did a lot of years in the kitchen, um, uh, sous chef, these sort of things. Uh, did a stint at a video store. That was a fun job. Um, but then I saw an ad while I was in college that uh, advertised the franchise opportunity. I didn't know it was a franchise opportunity. They just said, make 10 grand while you're off school this summer. And I was like, I only make three grand. So I went through a series of interviews. I got a job. I got accepted. I invested in myself $5,000 to get into a franchise that taught me how to refinish and paint houses and how to hire people and fire people and get jobs, customer service, all the good entrepreneur skills that I wasn't getting in college while I was paying for my business degree. So I, I learned how to run a business. I sold that business to my brother. He took the franchise from there. I then graduated school. I didn't really know what I was going to do with my business degree that I paid for with my own business already. Like it seemed just so backwards. And then I had a buddy who got a job at a software company called logic works in Princeton, New Jersey, like the fastest small business, fastest growing small business in America at that time, they had just gone public. And I was like, what do you do here? He's like, Oh, I'm doing sales. I'm like, you don't know anything about sales. He's like, well, and I was like, I'm going to call your boss. He's like, go ahead. So I got my foot in the door. I got the interview. I rapidly excelled. So all the people, I was always the youngest person wherever I was working back then. So the, the, I was in my twenties, everyone else is in their thirties, forties, fifties. I blew my quotas out every week, which means they give you a goal and I just would 10 exit. I'd be like, well, I need to make, you know, everyone else is making hundred calls. I'll figure out how to make 500 calls or I'll make 50 calls more strategically, or I'd have a better plan. Right. So I went through several jobs rapidly accelerating because of my entrepreneur skill set. Right. Learning how to do uh, sales as a as a service, as a, as a set of problem solving. So you're not trying to problem solve for people who don't want to problem solve. Right. So you leave out the the pushy, persuady, convincing, all that cringeworthy stuff. And you're just finding people that have the problem and you help them solve it. It's very lucrative. So I went through uh, like three different companies before I ended up oh, two different companies before I ended up in New York City. So I'm in New York City, it's year 2000, they got the Y2K stuff going on, I'm making good money, the company I'm working for uh, is getting bought out. So um, my boss goes down the street and he gets a job in another company, I end up working, uh, he says, get a job here too. So I took that uh, opportunity, I interviewed, so now we're equals, he was my boss, but now we're equals at this new company. And this company called Silverstream had just gone public, and while I was there, it was a 300 person company and the average sale was like, you know, it's a $4,000 product. I went out and found a client that needed a million dollar project of this variety. I brought that to the company. So it was a million dollars plus 5 million in services. So that's the biggest deal the company's ever had. So I'm excelling at my position. Um, this 
comes around June, 2001. I'm closing phase two of that deal, which is another 5 million in software, another 5 million in services or more. Uh, I get 20% on the software. So I was about to cash out with another million dollars, like a million dollar commission check. I'd already earned a million dollars in my career from that franchise. So I invested five grand. I got skills. I made a million before I was 30, had nothing to do with what I learned in college. That's the gist of that. So I'm off during the summer of 2001. I have some health problems. My former employer comes back to me and they offered me extension on my health care because they're so generous after they fired me to come back and find me, extend my health care and uh, give me $9,999 just cause. And then there's a confidentiality thing right there. So I was on painkillers when I signed that I took the money. And then like a week later, I was like, what's going on with this? And I had another opportunity that put me um, uh, in windows on the world on September 7th. So like that Friday night before 9-11, I was there. Uh, and I got a new job offer. And, uh, and with the with the potential of that new job offer, I, I was like, oh, I'm going to make a call about that thing that happened last time with those accounts and the people I was working with. My, so the biggest client that I brought Silverstream was Marshall McLennan companies. They're in World Trade Center one. We had offices. There was a whole bunch of uh, developers we had. Uh, we had an office on the 96th floor, 97th floor by that point. Um, and I used to go there several times a week. Like I was my main client. That was our biggest account. I'm there servicing the heck out of them but I'd been fired. Right. So by the time September, that Friday night comes along September 7th, I think it is. Uh, I had made a phone call from inside the, the restaurant down to the secretary that handled the Marsh account. And I said, I have these documents. And the reason I got, uh, Oh man, I forgot that part of the story. See, this is a problem, Daniel. When I try to try to boil it down <laughs> back in June, when I was about to close that deal, I never got that money. I never got that other commission check. I never got to retire and go like chill. I got fired the next day. And when I thought back in hindsight, I was like, what was, what, what led to me getting fired? I just closed this big deal other than them wanting to take my money, which was their cutthroat. But the, I sent an email the night before I got fired and it said, Marsha McClendon, we're billing them $5 million on, on, on services that we're not getting paid on. And what is this stuff? And it's, they were laundering money or something, right? You know, I wasn't supposed to be asking that question. So anyway, that comes full circle to, uh, the people that were working on the Marsh project were going to get fired. They were all Lotus Notes, Legacy. They were supposed to have a new place and the infrastructure, but there was no plan for that, right? And I thought it had something to do with all this extra project, whatever was going on with this extra billing. So I just wanted to give these documents to these people and let them fight it out in the meeting, you know, confront each other, maybe get like keep their jobs. So I had left the message on that Friday night. I got a message back Monday to drop the documents off on Tuesday, Tuesday morning, that they were having a global conference call that, you know, the whole like marsh.com global project was gonna be on there and they have conference room and just, they're going to have a break, like just show up, drop the documents on the table and split. That's the gist I got from the voicemail. So, uh, that Tuesday morning, uh, I was driving down to the trade centers. I had the top down on my convertible. It was, I was in the path of wherever the plane allegedly flew over. I didn't hear the plane fly over. I didn't hear the explosion. But by the time it came to me, I was a couple blocks away and I hear it on the radio and I look up and that building's on fire. So I'm thinking it's an, an accident. And during that, that turmoil, it's like, I don't know, 18 minutes, um, I had made a left 
And by the time the second tower blows up, I'd already seen enough to like, want to be like, want to leave <laughs> when the second tower blew up and I saw flashes right to my right in world trade center six, I was like, I got to get out of here. Like this is coordinated. And I was as shocked as a person could be because I was a naive kid from Western Pennsylvania. I'd never thought I would, that there, I would never thought terrorism like that would happen in America, let alone it happen right there, like in front of me at a place where I was about to go. <clears throat> so I split at that point. I panicked. I split. I left New York City and uh, I learned slowly afterwards about not just the incongruencies that I kind of was trying to put together from my own experience, but I learned about the insider trading. I learned about the people handling the gold vaults underneath were handling the security up top. And there was a whole bunch of things where it was all self-owned between Marshall McLennan and AIG and Kroll Associates. And it's all like a family owned organization. So AIG was also one of my clients and Hank Greenberg's son, Jeff Greenberg, he ran Marshall McLennan. These are world like McLennan is um, the world's largest insurance brokerage. So the average person has no idea who these companies are or what they really do because they're like corporate upon corporate, like they're upper layer. Right. So I didn't know who these cats were when I was working for them or trying to help them webify all their legacy data like a fool, you know, using my intellectual capacity to help some of the most ruthless companies in the world. Like all these banks that I learned about afterwards, Goldman Sachs and Merrill Lynch, like I've been in meetings in all these places. I, they were my clients at one point. I had no idea the milieu in which I was swimming. I thought it was just like, you know, kind of cutthroat swimming with sharks. I didn't understand like uh, the, there was no integrity to any of that system. And then I blew the whistle in 2003 when I worked at a different company um, because they were, setting people up to do massive money laundering and putting companies at risk that had no, they, they were selling a prophylactic and purposely putting holes in it so that companies would buy this to feel safe, but it would actually open them up to people laundering money through their organization or worse. And then you had the 2004 to 2008 subprime loan crisis, and there's no email trail of any of that stuff. And that's what the, the software I blew the whistle on that had the back door was supposed to protect against. So it's like, as my <laughs> naivete crashed and burned, I had to start reading and, and looking, what is the history of what's going on? Who made these companies and these law firms and these other things that were protecting uh, an internationalist effort? That's what it comes down to. It's an internationalist effort of collectivism that wants to take away individual rights around the world. But I discovered it in America those years. Oh, man. All right. So, yeah, that would kick somebody into gear, That you know, witnessing that firsthand. Uh, you, you mentioned the gold. What, what was going on with the gold? Sorry, I, I'm not yeah, there's, up um, to speed. People know it from the diehard movies about gold vaults under there, and they think it's fake, but there's actually gold vaults under the World Trade Center. And during the attacks, there were gold bars put into trucks that were down under this area in these tunnels, that were left behind. So it appears a robbery was in progress when those buildings finally came down and that whatever happened before those buildings came down, I mean, we don't know because the people who took it were the people in control of, of guarding it. And it's um, there's a New York Times 
November 1st or 2nd, 2001 article by Jim Dwyer. And I believe it's at the bottom of that article where they mention the goal. It's very, it's pretty subtle. I, I think it's in the title though, like the ground below ground zero, something like that was the title of the article. So that plus the insider trades that, you know, American airlines intersects with Marshall McLennan on nine 11. Well, a couple of weeks earlier, people were putting put options, uh, you know, bets against those two companies and a whole bunch of other companies that are involved. And when you trace those back, they went to Deutsche Bank, which was one of my clients at that time. And um, CIA, former CIA director, Buzzy Krongard, who's working now in an investment bank and had this prescient. And there was also trades that weren't picked up. So there was like a lot of foreknowledge. So I started just asking, like, how did the guys with the box cutters do these things? And then I'm doing that line of research. I was rep representing myself pro se in court. So I had to learn how to be a lawyer. And I went up against one of the largest law firms in the world that protected the United States when they got in trouble with Iran-Contra and BCCI and other internationalist skullduggery. This was the law firm that they you know, chose to defend them. I went up against them. I got a good lesson out of that. And during that time, I started... That's when I first bumped into Gatto's work, probably around 2003, 2004, but it bounced off me because I was the prime candidate who had been through the indoctrination system and thought like, oh, I did well at that. I must be smart, but like, I'm reading his book. And I'm like, I'm not getting it. So then I did a couple more years research and that's when I bumped into like Carol Quigley's work and Anthony Sutton's work and Charlotte Iserbeet and well, maybe not her work at that point, but I bumped into other similar works like that. And then I came back and read Gatto's book again, The Underground History of American Education. And I knew all the names of all the people and all the stories by then. And then it became like it unlocked the book. Now, I didn't have this input processing output start with the definitions and that which exists kind of trivia mentality yet. So it occurred to me like the first time the book bounced off me, it's because there's too many names in there. I didn't know the history of, I didn't know who these people were and I didn't look them up for myself. I didn't try to understand who these people were. And therefore the book is kind of impervious to, to you and getting it. But if you go into like reading chapter nine, the cult of scientific management, and you know who Bertrand Russell is, and you know who the Fabian socialists are, and you've seen from other angles, their story. And now he's telling you the story put together wow nothing like it on this planet i mean carol quigley i mean gatto praises quigley and his prose and you know i i think gatto's work is much more accessible and on any given page you're getting more nuggets than quigley doled out during his whole career the uh, the thing that the thing that makes it tough sometimes is john was so like avidly anti-academic by the time he wrote the underground history in 2001 that he refused to do footnotes and these sorts of things. So he has the research. And so we spent time trying to like assemble the 400 books that he used as source material and like track all this stuff down. And you can be incredulous, but you're going to find out he was right. It's just going to, he's making you do the work and not being like, well, here's the answer. Here's the answer. Right. But on our side, it's like, people need those references to give it the ultimate credibility that those facts deserve. So being able to go to the Bertrand Russell books and say, look, John's not just picking quotes out. Like here's 1914 principles of social reconstruction by Bertrand Russell. And he has this to say about how, you know, looking for control over human beings. 
through education and, and artificially constructing our society as the rulers see fit. And then you can go to like 1952 scientific outlook and he's even more detailed. And he's like, you know, the quote that John said that God is looking into that book. In fact, let me see if I have, I have the book here. Let me see. Oh, I got both of them here. Let's see if this is a, a special day or not. Let's see if the synchronicity is working for us. Let's go to the book cam. Scientific Outlook, Bertrand Russell. There we go. Let's take a look. This is the book from the 1950s, and it's 1931. Oh, 1931, first edition. So I don't want the reprints. I don't want the stuff that's been edited. I always get uh, first edition of these sort of things. But there's a quote in there that John said about Fichte. I'm pretty sure it is in this book. Let's see if I can find it on the fly, under pressure. Probably not, but we're looking. We're trying real hard for you, Dan. This is amazing. Uh, I, yeah. uh, Richard Grove Live. Well, I have a I have a copy that's highlighted, but it's not this copy. And I have a copy that I bought this book for John and gave it to him. And when he mm -hmm. got it, he inscribed it inside that he got this copy from Richard Grove. And then when he passed away and I was archiving his library, I found it. I was like, oh, this is. Oh, this man. Is, so I keep that. I keep it in my office. I don't keep yeah. it down here. But this is the other one. Uh, Principles of Social Reconstruction. Bertrand Russell. And this is the one I believe is from like 1914 let's see london 1916 mm -hmm. november 1916 um this is a 1954 reprint in this case because getting the first edition in 1916 of this book is uh pretty tough to do but this might also have that key passage basically what he said was fichte uh bertrand russell was saying that Fichte laid it down that education was not meant. Oh, look, they're talking about, he's talking about world state in here, 1930. Mm, wow. So there was an agenda of this type, uh, Malthusian type of control the population agenda that he kind of worked out in his philosophy and his publications for 40 years. So it's not like it was this one time he said this one thing. Um, Look, here's another one. This isn't the one I was looking for, but education is usually treated as a means of prolonging the status quo by instilling prejudices rather than creating free thought and a noble outlook by the example of generous feeling and the stimulus of mental adventure, right? So education really is supposed to be the latter, but it's not, you know, it's not about creating free thought. It's about instilling prejudices and controlling them so that they can maintain the status quo. So when you start to see, it's like, okay, I'm not taking them out of context. This is like, that was in a chapter of what we do, right? This is principles of social reconstruction. Like understand what he's talking about. This is taking apart your society and putting it back together as they will. And then the scientific outlook, Fichte quote, I thought it was on the left-hand page, but the, yeah, the general idea was that Fichte laid it down that education shouldn't aim at like helping the individual to flourish, but rather as a means of control. And so if you hard. understand the ruling class side, yes, it makes total sense, but it just is antithetical to how we're taught, what we're taught to believe, right? And how we're taught uh, how things work. So really getting into understanding the, the characters in the story to understand the story is an element that is not reinforced in schooling, which is what makes it schooling. It's there to 
instill those prejudices, get us to maintain the status quo and to think and react, not, not even think, acquiesce our thinking by assuming so we can react to stimulus in a like manner. That's useful for control. It's antithetical to self-reliance and that which we need to survive and thrive in this world. And it forgoes three, free thought, creativity, inventiveness, ingenuity, because all those things are threats to their status quo, right? Any one of the quantum computers, 7 billion of them floating around the planet can start to cognize what's going on, figure out a better way, make a model that makes their model obsolete. And they're always trying to cut those off at the pass. So I think the more people we can get thinking for themselves, the harder it is, A, for them to control people who are thinking and not assuming. I mean, 99% of the control out there is just through people assuming things are fact when they're not, and them believing a fact check instead of learning how to be like, well, I'm going to look at the source myself. I'm going to use my quantum computer. I'm not going to outsource that processing that I need to like have a, a guard that stands at the, the gate of my mind and only lets facts in. And those facts have to be questioned, right? Whereas everyone else is just like, I heard it on TV, so it must be true. And that absence of consciousness is a threat to freedom. It's a threat to uh, peace, it's, but it's part of nature. So it's never going to go completely one way or the other, but right now they get it turned up to 11. Let's turn it down to like a two. Let's get our quantum thinking computers going and let's run a methodology to question and inquire and trust, but verify. Like we can be polite about this. Like I trust you, but I'm going to look it up. I want to learn more than what you just told me. In other words, that's it. And um, if it doesn't start with, like, if we're talking about it as means of objective concern, then there has to be objective evidence. And then the subjective concerns that we use, because that's a huge part of our human beingness is our subjective capacity. And the logic and the inductive and deductive logic is just our way to go from general to specific and specific to general, to input and process and output. So it's, it's a beautiful process here. And if we just learn to use the tools and resources we kind of have and, and run better code on our biological software, <laughs> As far as like, let's have non-aggression, no masters, no slaves. Let's use some critical thinking, some creative problem solving. Let's become really intrepid listeners and know how, how to ask good questions and receive good answers and then work from there on getting better plans to move forward in life. And that's no going room to be for that in school. Yeah. There's no room for that whatsoever. In because school. the school is made, it, you know, I, I beat this drum for, I've beaten this drum for many years. It's, it's there to do the exact opposite. It's there to beat it out of you. Uh, and this is why in, you know, you see some nation states right now that France is one of them where I'm currently based, that they're changing the age of compulsory schooling or forced schooling, as we know it to be, to, to three years of age. Mm. So that this, this is a, a total attack on the family and yeah. on the, the the individual to make sure that they are marching to their little drumbeat as from as early as possible. Yeah. And they've talked about that. I mean, there's a, the Jesuit quote, you know, the Lenin quote, it's all repurposed of give me a control of a child till age seven and I'll show you the adult, right? Their formative yep. years. If you can get in there with your ideas first and hold that ground, then you have control because they're not going to think their way out outside of that infrastructure. And for most people, it's true. For most people, it's true. I mean, I didn't have like right now. I mean, I got a thick library, um, maybe 2000 books. When 9-11 happened, man, I might have had 20 books on my shelf. A few of them I'd actually read later. They're just books. You know, I wasn't actively reading. I thought I knew. 
And that's the whole difference. Reading the New York Times, reading The Economist, Wall Street Journal, dealing with Fortune 100 financial companies and being really successful by age 30, I thought I knew. I was making more money than my parents and I was more upwardly mobile than anyone else that I graduated with. I thought I was like kicking it. And then I started to find out about stuff I didn't know. And that made all this other stuff kind of like <clears throat> not so valuable. Having an inaccurate map of the theme park is not valuable, especially when there are pitfalls. Right. And it's like, okay, I can throw that. I can, you can keep clinging to that map. That's not accurate. And you can keep hitting these snags and pitfalls, or you can say, I'm going to go without the map. You know, it's like when Luke Skywalker turns off the Navic computer so he can just use the force. The force is us being able to process our, our awareness of this reality and question it critically to be able to come up to a judgment, a conclusion, a choice. And without using that process, we don't have freedom. And I think that's provable out there. You don't use the thinking process. You're going to end up mentally enslaved. There's a lot of those people, many such cases these days. Oh my God. So many. Um, yeah. Look at the last two years. There's the result of so much just blanket education global state education yeah yeah and then but the cool thing is like there's people out there that have been kind of chipping away at it like uh i was really thrilled to see michael saylor on your podcast a while yeah. back because i had heard of him at that time somewhat like he spoke someplace and i was like i i don't know that name right but then i had seen your interview I was like, I went to his site. I was like, oh, this is pretty smart. And I had done something similar like 20 years ago, but I didn't think to be like, do it for other people. Like I just did it for myself. I went to all these universities. I'm like, what do they have out there for free? Oh, let me take history from Yale, from um, uh, who was the, the professor. Uh, and it is important. Donald Kagan, the, the, the dad of Robert and uh, who's the other Kagan? Frederick Kagan, these neocons, like the Robert Kagan's married to Victoria Newland who's in the whole United States, Ukraine situation. She's like the special ambassador to that. And she helped with the 2014 coup to put uh, Zelensky in there in the first place or what, what came to be Zelensky's place in there. Um, so Donald Kagan's, you know, history course at Yale, I remember going through that and it's like, it's not impressive. So what you can learn on your own is much more impressive than Oxford and Yale and Harvard and these other places. Cause if you understand anything about these topics, then you go take those classes. You're like, well, these people are never going to get to where they need to be from here. It's just a limitation of that a fancy narrative for them to defend and give them the guise of, you know, killing them with kindness. Cause it's the right thing to do. Cause they're the smarter Mandarin managerial class of the world. Because that's the internationalist belief is that they have the right to make everyone's lives and futures. And it's not going to be determined by best outcomes and competition in the market. Yeah. And you're touching on something here that we face a lot in the Bitcoin community because we, we, we come at it from an angle of the, the, the money is broken. We need to fix the money, fix the world. Very, very strong meme. And that money is being controlled by the usual names that you and John would have discussed that ended up actually controlling the education system as well. And then you see all of these, call them what you want, uh, globalists, internationalists, um, monopolists, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, all of the above, most likely. 
and and but then when you try and explain this to to people, they'll turn around to you know Peterson, for example, will turn around and say, yeah, but who is they? You know, when someone says they, I get a little bit, you know, my 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 ears prick up a little bit, yeah. and I, I lose trust in the person because they, you know, you're immediately pigeonholed as a conspiracy theorist. Yeah. Whereas whereas my belief is there is a fucking they. And it's about time we woke up and figured out who they are and started planning accordingly. Um, so how would you answer that? I mean, because they- I would love if Jordan Peterson would ask me that question. Right. I, would hold, I would hold court for about six hours. Do it. Um, all right. So uh, if you want to limit they down to a single coherent narrative that's evidence fact-based substantial you could dig into it for your whole lifetime of study many people have if you want to limit that down and have that cover let's say last 120 years right that'll be some place to start i'm not saying that's the totality of it but if you have this long a train of abuses and evidence together maybe that's a good place to start because you might see that all these other things kind of fit into that narrative so you know some people would start with well, Klaus Schwab and World Economic Forum and Bilderberg Group and all these sort of things. Like, yes, those things all exist and they are working groups. But what's the plan? What's the goal? What's the agenda? Who started it? Who funded it? Where are the documents? You can go back to the last will and testament of Cecil John Rhodes with elucidatory notes by William T. Stead, who was his business partner and conspirator. William T. Stead and Cecil Rhodes conspired to create a secret society for the purposes of bringing America back into the British Empire. And then from there, they could take over the entire world as an English speaking movement. They called it the Pan, Ang Pan Angles. There's a bunch of names for this uh, from back in the early 1900s. So Rhodes was funded by uh, Lord Rothschild of Britain. There's French Rothschild, Swiss Rothschild. There's a whole bunch of different Rothschild family uh, lineages. He got funded from the, the British one. He was funded in South Africa. Uh, he was the front man who conglomerated all these diamond mines to create De Beers consolidated mines and also the gold mining interests of South Africa. He created apartheid or at least the structure for the system to take hold. They had to have some concentration camps in a Boer War before they kicked off World War One. It's all the same group of people. So it's Cecil Rhodes. Uh, his Lord Milner was uh, one of the main characters that helped to carry out Rhodes's will. He had Rhodes's kindergarten or Milner's kindergarten, which was a bunch of young men who were there who were uh, acolytes of Cecil Rhodes to carry his will forward. Some of the most powerful people in the British Empire in the realms of finance and um, media publication, newspapers, these sorts of things were part of this inner circle. They uh, brought about World War I and got America into World War I, even though America doesn't really have anything to do with that. There's a mechanism that they use to get one step closer to the former enemy. And then by World War II, completely joined with a special relationship. And so the country that we had fought against 200 years ago, all of a sudden is like in the driver's seat and it's deep capture on America here for the past 60 years. So when you go down through Rhodes's last will and Testament, as soon as he dies in 1902, um, Lord Rothschild was one of the early executors. And then they changed the executor to, I think, Lord Roseberry, who is Lord Rothschild's son-in-law. So it wouldn't seem like Rothschild was in control. Um, as soon as they get that done, the Pilgrim Society is founded in 1902. So uh, it's an Anglo-American elite society 
uh, of the ilk when uh, Stanley Kubrick has the shining and there's that picture of the black and white photo of all the tucks and ties and tails people. That's like that pilgrim society type of photo. So Kubrick might've been pointing to something because he had a big interest in gold and these sort of things. He might be pointing back to the people who scuttled American wealth. So pilgrim society, 1902, uh, Royal Institute of international affairs, 1918 Rockefeller foundation helps to create that in Britain. So an American group, helps to create this British society for empowering the empire. They're part and parcel of that whole agenda. By 1921, you get the Council on Foreign Relations, which is a council is a Soviet of foreign relations. Bolshevism was just taken over in Russia. That was the Soviet Union. Soviet means council. Council on Foreign Relations is moving America toward a communist merger for world power. So they're taking two irreconcilable systems and they're smashing them together. According to the work of Charlotte Isabeet and deliberate dumbing down of America, she's got all the documents, right? Carnegie Endowment does all that sort of stuff. Ford Foundation as well. So now you got CFR in the early 1920s and that working group starts to take over American statecraft and heavily influence American politics in the way of the Anglo-American establishment. Uh, by 1954, uh, you've got the Bilderberg Group. That's a, like a corporate conglomeration. By 73, you got Trilateral Commission. That's like uh, Asia-Pacific countries. Uh, so they get all these different working groups. 1971, they get the World Economic Forum, which was a, an output of the Club of Rome's project on population control. And then so they got all these working pieces. They got population control. They got um, allopathic medicines, all Rockefeller controlled through the 20th century. Uh, eugenics is rebranded into molecular biology by the Rockefeller establishment. And then <clears throat> oh, what was the other part? I was visualizing. Uh, so uh, Rockefeller also created um, the general education board and controlled American schooling. So mm -hmm. medical to control your pain, schooling to control your thought, uh, the eugenics uh, population control aspect to control uh, the number of people that they're going to have working toward their agenda because they don't need so many as they go on, right? They've got most of the technology they need to separate themselves from everybody else and have like an Elysium technological power knowledge gap over the slavery, right? But Wells, H.G. Wells wrote about this in Things to Come, or I think Things to Come was the 1938 movie and Shape of Things to Come was the book that preceded it. But it's about a world war that takes us all back to the stone age. And then like halfway three quarters through the movie, after everyone's throwing rocks and hitting each other with sticks and having like gang mentality, here comes wings over the world that has like nuclear weapons and like total technological control over the whole planet. And it's a huge power gap. Well, that's just the plan for Elysium. So the elites have shown that they've wanted to take this knowledge and expand. It's just about them differentiating themselves so that they seem more than they are, right? Cause we're all just human beings. Uh, we all for, traditionally, we all came into this world pretty much one way. Now there are all, all alternative ways to come in, but, uh, for a long time, there was only one way into this place. It had a certain set of circumstances and people reproduce. And those people who have monarchical power where it's like, oh, you're a king. Cause your dad was a king. Well, okay. So that's a type of mental illness. I don't hold it against them. Some people have that. I hold against them. Everyone else around. That says, yes, you're a king and I shall serve you. And there's this whole thing. Like, I don't know about all that. And I think philosophically, uh, there was a lot of good uh, arguments against that. And that's how America came about in the first place. That maybe we should decide amongst each other as mature adults how things should run. 
and not have someone from across the ocean tell us what to do. And King George was mad anyway. So <laughs> it was an easy argument to make back in the day. But that was all over attacks on East India Company tea. And uh, people today have become a lot more tolerant to the totalitarianism and the fascism uh, of late. And I think that comes back to the schooling and the conditioning and the preparation of our, our mental environment for years before they sprung pandemic on us. You know, it was received and people were in lockstep in 208 countries like that. And that doesn't happen without practice or preparation or motive or opportunity. Well, in, in your interview with John, he's talking about um, visiting the library and going through the stacks and looking at magazines just prior to World War II, right? And he yeah. said, uh, it's amazing what you can achieve if you have to declare a national emergency. Or, or in this case, with a pandemic, global emergency. My, my God, like, yeah. you know, the collusion involved was, was something I don't think any of us could have seen coming. Well, and if Bill Gates wasn't so prominently involved, I don't think a lot of people would have paid attention. But when they're mm -hmm. like, what? He funds the World Health Organization, like to the tune of a country, like it's US, China, and Bill Gates that fund that thing. Maybe he's got some influence over there. And all these other things that were going on, like I remember early in the pandemic when my friend Benny Wills had put out um, a video and he's like, oh, these guys had a practice session in October of. 2019 on mm -hmm. the same thing that's going on and, I, and he's like and bill gates was involved and i was like man you're going too far like this is a real thing going on and you can't just be saying bill gates and so i went and started looking i was like oh geez event 201 sponsored by bill and melinda gates johns yep. hopkins foundation and bloomberg school of health whatever it was and then there's a five hour on their own youtube it's not anything conspiracy it's just these people had a meeting for the thing that it that happened to break out they were totally prepared because they'd had a, a simulation but they did nothing to get ppe or anything else that people needed right so they they practiced and the result of that was they were able to achieve maximum panic and fear that seems antithetical to the reason they told us they were meeting and then if you layer on that the fact that the earliest that this thing is spotted is around the same time that they're doing that you can see that's a launch meeting that's not a practice meeting that was the launch and they had the the cojones to do it in public they're like here we are and the same people at the meeting a lot of times were the same people running stuff you know and so it's like when my state had a lockdown and they were talking about opening up they're like the governor has a special committee to help him uh, make this decision so i was like oh who's on this special committee who are these brain genius researcher type people doctors right you would think doc no nah, it's this woman from pepsi who's on the world economic forum, <laughs> uh, board of directors and, um, her and her it staff, like they're going to help. And, and then I'm like, what's the history of my governor and this woman from Pepsi? Oh, they've made billions of dollars together, dude. Well, I was like in the, the governor of my state, his grandfather was Thomas Lamont who helped to bring in the federal reserve and was like a big, you know, Anglo-American establishment banker. So like, he's, he's that's nepotism he's just bred into like you have a state to run when you grow up like that's another level that's almost monarchical you know that structure where it's like like a fiefdom you got a fief <laughs> fief it's 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 crazy all right let, let's talk about you've only got about 10 minutes left right mm. uh so your your interview with john let, let's um Let's get some insights and uh, some like kind of like uh, behind the scenes. How did you pull that off? 
what was it like to to hang with him for like that that whole weekend? I think you guys uh, spent together. Uh, you clearly had. I don't know whether you built a relationship before, but I can tell during the interview that there is. It's he has a huge amount of respect for you during that interview and the way that you're conducting it and pulling out the names and pulling out the books and all the references, it must've been very, very deeply researched. Uh, yeah. So just, just tell us a little bit about, about that weekend. You want behind the scenes, the behind the scenes are in the movie. No, I'm just I kidding. saw some of them. I yeah, did. Right? Yeah. All right. So, uh, the ultimate history lesson, a weekend with John Taylor Gatto, we filmed it in 2011, uh, July 4th weekend. So it was independence day. I was like, okay, John, come up on July 4th weekend. Let's do this. And um, I tracked him down for probably at least a good six months, maybe a year before he responded to me. So you got to try, not take it personally. Try again a couple months later. Try again. Try again. Right? Yeah, exactly. Like if you have a goal, there's no stopping. It's just a yeah. matter of when he's going to get pissed off that I keep contacting him. Right? <laughs> so he calls me. It was like probably May or June. And he's like, Richard, this is John Taylor Gatto. And he was in his barn in the upstate New York uh property and he's chasing a raccoon and he's like uh <laughs> he's like i got your invitation he's like yeah he's like uh i want to do the interview and i figured when i wrote the invitation i'm going to john's place in new york city like it's easy to do that or worst case upstate new york is like four hours from me he's like um i'm gonna need you to buy me a plane ticket and i'll come to hartford and all this stuff and i was just like yeah sure okay uh you know i'll, I'll do that and then i got off the phone my wife's like we don't have money to buy a plane ticket and we don't have air conditioning you can't have this guy sitting here under lights no air conditioning and i was like i don't know we're gonna figure it out and we did and we did a fundraiser among the tragedy and hope uh online community that we had and so there's a couple you know thousand people in there and we raised enough money to like buy john's tickets and buy an air conditioner for the living room and make sure that everything was good and we had friends come in from like all over the country to help us uh, staff the microphones and the audio and the cameras and these sort of things. And one of my buddies came in from Phoenix and he just cooked for everybody else the whole time. So we pick up John on Friday night at the airport. It's the first time I ever met him. And uh, I see him on the escalator and he's got his, uh, his fishing vest on, right? It was like trademark. Actually, it was a hunting vest. Technically, it's a hunting vest because I have it among the artifacts but uh so he's got his like trademark vest on and uh i'm talking with him and when i drop him off at the hotel i give him my outline i'm like here's my outline this is what i want to talk to you about so next morning i'm setting up cameras and i think lisa went and picked him up at the hotel she, you know he comes in he sits down he's got that handkerchief in his pocket yep and uh janet had told him to put the hanky in his pocket look, you'll look sharp she's right that was a good trademark for him um, and he sits down with this, this, the document I gave him, he goes, Richard, if we had a whole week, we couldn't talk about this. <laughs> and so I just set the, I set the outline aside and then we just talked. And so he and I had never really talked before that session. And it was invigorating for me. Cause I was like trying to remember all these different parts from the outline and like in my head. But once you do a 50 page outline, you don't need the outline because it's in your head. You know, if you, if you learned enough to prepare that well, then you don't need that thing. Let's just move forward and have an organic conversation. So we just, I just pointed to what was on the screen. I was like trivium. And then we started, he's like, oh, when I think I always argue with myself and write it out. And he's explaining his dialectical process for coming to truth. And then we just talked for a couple hours that day and a couple hours the next day. 
And then it took like six months to edit it together. And then I sent him like 50 copies of the handmade, hand burned, like labeled DVD printed with the, all the stuff that goes with it. Right. Cause that was a whole process. I did it all myself. I sent him 50 copies. I don't get any word back. I sent him, you know, that was to the farm. So I sent 50 copies to his apartment in New York. I wait a month, nothing. I figure he doesn't like it. I was like, this guy's blowing me off. He doesn't like what, oh man, I failed. Six months later, we get word that John had had a stroke the week after we did the footage and he had been in the hospital the whole time. And so when he was getting out, we went to see him right away and hospital had lost his dentures. And I was like, mm, can't have that. So Lisa and I drove. So it's like a 12 hour round trip between here, driving to New York, helping and coming back. It takes 12 hours, right? Uh, we went to New York six times to like, you got to get the fitting, you got to get the thing and then they got to adjust it. So it was like six trips for, for dentures. And then he's, he's smiling like a butcher's dog, as we would say in Pittsburgh. And uh, even though the left side of his body was kind of paralyzed, like he was, he was still there. And with his teeth, like he can kind of be himself and express himself. And, um, I used to take him to get his haircut, like maybe every eight weeks or so would go in and get him in the wheelchair and put him in the truck and take him uptown to the barber. And then at a certain point, uh, he, it was just too much pain for him to do that. So I would cut his hair. I would take clippers and would go to New York. Me and my buddy Dylan would like, Hey, let's go give John a haircut. We drive to New York. We bring him a Guinness. He likes the pork chop in the bottle Guinness. And, uh, he'd tell us stories while I cut his hair. And, uh, there were some really, really good stories that he told that, um, about him growing up and the people he, him and Epstein used to hang out with him and Jay Epstein. One of them was Mario Puzo. And, uh, who's that? I don't really, he's the guy who wrote the Godfather. Right. Okay. Yeah. He's the, he's the author. So he's like writing about the Italian criminal mafia in America. And then I feel like John was like, here's how he knows how to write about that. Like, here's what he's writing about. And these guys were doing a thing during the Vietnam war where you could buy your way out. And um, so it was a small group of people that like, you know, long Island country club set that Epstein and uh, had access to some organized crime people that Puzo had access to. And they were running a thing where for some money you can get out of going to the war and that worked. And they were, had this thing going on. And then this one guy, uh, it didn't work for him. And then he tried to drag his feet and make some problems. And one of the characters in this story had to leave the country and go to Greece might've been Gatto's ex-roommate, but I don't want to speak about uh, that because it's like speaking out of turn so anyway there's some interesting stories about the actual things that went on with people who later did things that were famous or infamous in some cases right um and uh seeing someone in uh an advanced state of incapacitation such as john in that situation and, and then later janet his wife had a stroke too so they had they had really tough last years and they would say stuff like, you know, getting old's not for the faint of heart. And they had a good sense of humor and they were really good, like, as John described it, like Scotch Irish work ethic insofar as they wouldn't accept help because um, it makes them weaker. 
So I was going and trying to help. And then I had to understand, oh, they have this philosophy. And if help's going to be had, there has like it has to happen a certain way. Right. Um, it's like when we tried to do fundraising for John, he didn't want to he didn't want anything to do with it. And I'm like, you don't understand because he's like he felt he would be in debt to these people. And I said, no, dude, what what these people are doing is reflecting the value you've already given to them. And they know you might need it now. So they're reflecting it back like this. And he's like, oh, OK. And then he was able to like receive. But uh, yeah, I mean, I wish I would have got to hang out with him more before he was in that uh, mental and medical uh, milieu of like, it's tough recovering from a stroke, being physically limited, uh, limited um, and being like, he can internalize, he can read stuff, but he had trouble. Like he was still writing. He was still actively writing. He had still books he was working on, but it was just such a struggle for him to do it at that point. But I, I joke with them. I'd be like, Hey, John, look before the stroke, you know, like you type with one finger now after the stroke, but before the stroke, you only type with two fingers on your best day anyway. Cause he was a hunt and peck type typer. Right. So like we'd laugh and, uh, we, we had a lot of good times over those years until he passed probably two years ago. So uh, it was a good, uh, there's more to be learned from all that too. Yeah, for sure. Well, he's been such a, such a great ambassador for those people that are questioning the education system and then find his work through your video or through his books. And, you know, I, I've, I've talked about him on many podcasts before. Uh, there's, um, you know, he's up there with the best. Uh, well, and the uh, reason that I filmed, like the reason I, sh I did that whole documentary project was, I had gone through all his stuff, audio and video. And what came up time and time again was I'm trying to hear this guy and I can't hear him. I'm trying to see what's going on and I can't see because it's bad video and bad audio. I was like, this guy deserves and I have the equipment to do. And that's what it was like. I should just step up. I didn't know how to do what I offered to do. I knew how to do the interview part. I knew how to film it. I didn't know how to make a DVD let alone a four DVD set with menus and all this other stuff. Like it was challenging, but like chewing off that bite, you know, <laughs> but it needed to be done. And I'm proud to say like, uh, even though there's a lot of cinema cinematography mistakes in that, because it shows my rookie nature of just about everything. I don't think anyone's ever mentioned those things because Gatto's lit. He's focused and you can hear him clearly. So whatever else is going on on the set, the fact that I'm out of focus when it comes to my shot or I'm out of frame when it comes to my shot, no one even notices that. And that's the other thing that you have to realize is that where, where's people attention going and, and editing to service that and not try to fix other things they're not even going to pay attention to. And I probably could have saved two months of editing on that six month project. <laughs> Do I have but, any more time to ask you a, a few more questions or have you got to run? Uh, yeah, I got a couple more minutes. I just wanted to ask, like, uh, what you do is so important. I mean, you've you've got your your podcast, like the the, the seven hour marathon every week that you put out there, real long form, amazing stuff. The stuff you're talking about, do do you ever like fear that someone's going to come knock at the door? Has that happened before? Have have you been shut down? Have you been threatened? That's a good question. Uh, the fear, the fear largely from my experience has been unfounded because at the end of the day, not enough people come in contact with what I'm doing to make any substantial difference. Right. So they see it's like uh, what I'm doing is pretty futile, but it needs to be done. And I'm going to do it regardless of the outcome because it needs to be done. Um, the worst 
we've ever gotten is from people we've actually met before and not total strangers. Right. Um, I had some realistic fears when I was going up against multi-billion dollar corporations and law firms that at some point, since I did have the evidence and I did catch them that they could do something like that. Uh, at the end of the day though, they weren't even that threatened because they knew uh, I was in a rigged process and ultimately no threat to them. And that when I went to Lowell Bergman, uh, frontline and I was like, here's all this evidence. And they studied it and he came back to me. He's like, we can't, he's like, well, what you're saying might be true, but we can't publish it. Well, like it's a conflict of interest. And that's when I knew I was like, oh, it's deep capture. Like there is no authority to whom I can blow the whistle on this stuff. So I should just really figure out what's going on and help to make a model that makes this obsolete. And I think we do that with critical thinking, creative problem solving, communication, listening, empathy, no masters, no slaves, be excellent to each other type of mentality. Do what you said you'd do when you said you'd do it, have a sense of integrity, do that consistently over time, build trust with people and move in the light direction because it's the opposite of everything they're trying to make us do. You have a rallying call for any whistleblowers that or would be whistleblowers that are listening to this because there's a ton of people out there that have gone through some very very strange times the last two years and have some seen they've seen some shit that is totally against their ethical and moral beliefs yeah. Yeah. but they're they're hanging on in there and towing the line to a certain extent because they're just afraid of losing a job or you know upsetting their family or whatever it is i would say set realistic expectations which is not something that i had the benefit of doing for myself when i blew the whistle so when i blew the whistle under a federal federal statute called sarbanes oxley they had very specific whistleblower protection provisions that do not exist in reality so right. I was like, I'm, <laughs> I'm leaving a multi-million dollar career to do the right thing, to protect people in the public and to protect these companies that are being taken advantage of. And I'm going to depend on that net to catch me because I've got the evidence. I had submitted hundreds of hours of legally recorded conversations outside of the audit trails of email where these guys were telling me the different thing than what they tell me in the email. You can have all the evidence. But it's not going to, I mean, for me, it didn't make it anywhere beyond that courtroom where the judge was shaking hands with the people on the other side who had Super Bowl rings. Like, so when the judge is like smitten by my former employers, people, come on now, that's not right. That's not how justice works, <laughs> but it's an old boys club. And I didn't realize that at, the, at that point. So uh, blowing the whistle, you can expect, you know, you, you're going to scuttle uh, a multi-million dollar career or whatever your career is worth. And uh, you're going to be persona non grata. You're going to get harassment. And a lot of people are going to be like, just go get another job. Why are you doing this? And unless you have realistic expectations, like the, the whistleblower provisions are not going to protect you most likely, right? Uh, then you got to have an alternate, alternate plan. It might be like planning for your stepping out before you step out so you don't find yourself financially bereft, right? Um, we're having a, a guest this Sunday on Grand Theft World Podcast, Zach Voorhees, who is a Google whistleblower. And um, yeah, I'm going to ask him about like what, you know, you had a career at Google. Why would you do this? And uh, <laughs> get down to the importance of like living in a censorship free society. Because if you're just going to live in that censored, curated society and be part of that deep capture, then I don't know. Like that's the, uh, that's the opposite to me of what it means to be human. To be human, you would have to take your five senses 
and question things as you move forward in order to learn. In the absence of that, you're left with indoctrination. You're left with programming. You're left with assuming that what they write in the newspaper is true. You know, it's like that's what they want you to believe on those channels and in those those publications. That's all that is. It's not a semblance of research or journalism or truth anymore. And people have failed to to discern the difference. And that's how they've got most of the world off track. But I think that slavery is unnatural and that it's a natural part of the process, but it's not the intended outcome, right? The, the purpose of humanity is not to be slaves forever under a technological technocratic elite, but this is a, a struggle that we have to surmount in order to be free and have self-reliance. And, you know, you're not going to have world peace because world peace says no one's allowed to fight back, right? There's always going to be people resisting something and that has to be allowed to go on to some extent, but not the extent where it wipes everybody out. I'm more of a fan of let's just put those two leaders in the in the cage and let's have a pay-per-view event, you know, Zelensky versus Putin, whatever. But let's not involve millions of people. But, you know, until we come to those philosophical ideals, like we shouldn't use our tax dollars to make weapons to kill people on the other side of the world who really have nothing to do with anything and are no threat to us and stop making up reasons for going and stealing their resources and energy that makes it a legitimization of that use of violence, right? So if we undo those kind of irrationalities, yes, there are threats to freedom in the world and we should defend against those and we should have budgets, but right now it's all going in the opposite direction. Almost all that technology is being used to surveil us, to control us, to manipulate us, to, to do anything but liberate us. And so you know, 85% of my time during the week is used to teach clients and to teach students about, you know, entrepreneur skills, um, employee skills, these sort of things that they can have forward mobility and survive and thrive in the world. And then 15% is, you know, grand theft world on Sunday night for six or seven hours. And let's go through this week's news. Let's get into some, un, you know, let's uncensor some of the stuff they censored. Let's get into the documents they don't want you to look at and uh and move it forward you know so that the future has a a better sense of actual history than we inherited and i think that allows people to make better decisions and attain and retain and maintain freedom freedom maximalist that's uh that's that's what we freedom to whatever point you want it we should have options absolutely just give us a choice the freedom to have freedom imagine such a thing all right, Richard. Uh, I don't know if anybody's ever spoken to you about Bitcoin before, how how far down that rabbit hole you are, but I'd love to carry on this discussion. You can reach out anytime. I'd be more than happy to answer any of your questions because everything you just said is exactly echoed in, in that community. And we, we just figure that if we can take control away from them of the, the fiat monetary system, the currencies that they just enslave us with, basically, then For sure. we yeah, have yeah. a, we have a chance. And, yeah. And- I'd like to talk to you about that next time. I got a, in the other studio behind me where I do teaching, um, I got a letter from Ross Ulbricht in there and no without, way. Ross, without Ross, there'd be no Bitcoin, anything today. He had, he had to create a marketplace to use it. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. Free Ross. Free Ross. The, the, you know, the, there's, there's another, uh, there's another example of what they do. Like he went into yep. a market and said, there's opportunity here. Uh, he didn't know that that market was owned by somebody else, that he was infringing on somebody else's lucrative billions of dollars. And it, that's a sad story that continues to, uh, you know, free Assange and free Ross are the top two, you know, mm-hmm. political prisoners that people don't really consider 
uh, out there. And and pardon Snowden, right? That's uh... I'm still Ed's doing fine. Ed, Ed, you know, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Ed's very comfortable in, in Moscow. He's the Kim Philby of our day. I don't know. I don't know. You know, and I'm I'm skeptical of Poitras's portrayal of that whole situation. But uh, you know, and Julian Assange, he's got a sketchy background too. But anyone that they incarcerate like that in a Steve Biko type of manner and try to like dehumanize them slowly over time or like Mumia Abu Jamal, these are threats to the establishment that they're trying to make an example out of Ross Ulbricht, same thing. You know, mm-hmm. a double life sentence is, is a death sentence. Yeah. You know, hundred so percent. we have to educate people. And I think they're more open to be educated, being educated now than ever. Cause prior to COVID, they all thought they knew exactly how it was going. So we all have our wake up points. I think um, to close it out, Orwell had this quote, um, uh, illusions can persist for a really long time, but uh, they come to an end usually on a battlefield. Mm-hmm. So like we can hold on to these unrealities because they're supported by mainstream media. But at some point, reality is going to intersect and it's going to be something you know beyond what they've told you. And that's when you get to find out. And that's when the truth reveals itself. Uh, three things you can't hide, right? The sun, the moon, and the truth. Bit by bit by bit. It's coming. All right. Well, how can people find you? Uh, grandtheftworld.com is the podcast. And if you're interested in uh, personal training, uh, par excellence, you want some uh, critical thinking, creative problem solving, listening skills, sales skills, marketing skills, understand entrepreneurism on the internet, these sort of things, get autonomy.info forward slash ignite is the landing page is there any minimum is there any minimum age for that uh did you have uh kids if you're if if someone's under 18 we just have their parent join them in the course so we give them a two for one in that situation perfect all right brother well it's great to get to know you i'd love to have you come back on at some stage yeah this Uh, is fantastic and uh shout out to mike for for getting us together because uh yeah i think this is synergistic and especially your interest in homeschooling these sort of things we also have a lot of that interest uh, uh, as well among the uh, students and graduates, a lot of parents that are doing that sort of thing. So, Again, that's freedom. Yeah, it is. Let's explore it while we can. All right, man. Have a great day. Thank right you on. so much. Thanks, Dan. Peace. See you. Well, guys, I hope you enjoyed that rip with Richard. We could have gone on for hours more. Rich, I'm going to have to have you back on, mate, because that was uh, some great stuff. And I feel as though... You have some immeasurable knowledge up your sleeve and insights as well. Uh, in fact, I know you do because I've watched the video with you and John several times. And uh, I love the way you guys riff off of each other and the way that you can... You were interacting with him on his level at such a young age was so impressive. And I urge everybody to go and watch that. It, it's a long interview. It's about five hours long. You can knock it up to like one and a quarter, one and a half times speed, and you will not miss a beat. So definitely recommend that you do that. Um, But it just unravels everything. It unravels absolutely everything about the way the education system has been shaped and coerced and co-opted. And it's going to make you stop and think twice about just giving up your kids to the state. Because that's what you're doing. Not many people are ready to hear that. It's a big smack in the face, especially if you are of uh, a freedom mindset or libertarian kind of uh, leaning. 
or whether you're just apolitical and love your kids, it doesn't matter. You're giving your kids up to the state. As soon as you let them go, the state are bringing them up. And they're using um, lots of different tactics to do that. And John Taylor Ghetto, he was the man that stepped up out of this system that had made him what he was, that had given him Teacher of the Year three years in a row. He quit. The, the third year running, he won. And he he wrote, I quit, I think, which is still one of the most, most amazing pieces of writing that you will read about somebody coming to a realization within their career and stepping away from it, like many of us are in our fiat career. Many of you listening to these podcasts, you sit there day in, day out, staring out the window, hating your fiat existence. But something's keeping you there and you, you've painted yourself into a corner. Uh, and maybe you don't want to blow the whistle on something that you've seen. It's people like Richard and people like John that uh, you know give us give us hope and give us strength. So thanks very much for coming on. Make sure you're checking out the show sponsors. I've rambled a little bit, so I won't go into exactly who they are. You know who they are, and you can find them on the show notes. So I look forward to the next show, guys. Thanks for listening.